Good morning. I'm Chris. Welcome to church. Glad you're here. A few announcements for you before we get started. Um, all right. Announcements are over. It's time to bring in Advent. Um, if you are with us online, welcome. We're glad you're here. Um, if you have your Bible, open to Luke 1. And like I mentioned, um, today is the first Sunday of Advent. Advent actually finds its roots um, back to the fourth century, um, and it leads up to celebrate the birth of Jesus on Christmas morning. And every year, Advent calls us to be a people of hope and of patience. That's what Advent calls us to, and it seems particularly a welcome invitation this year. Um, Hope in that we call our hearts to remember uh, that Jesus came to us as a light comes in a dark place. That Jesus came to us like uh, the morning sun on a long, dark night. And patience in that we are waiting for Jesus to come again and to put the world, as N.T. Wright calls it, to rights in its fullness, to make all things new, to fully redeem what he purchased by his blood on the cross. Therefore, Advent at least according to the church, is a looking backwards, knowing Jesus has acted in coming and dying, and a looking forward that he promises he will act again and one day return. So the word itself, Advent, means a coming into place or an arrival, a coming into being. And the point of the season of Advent is to help our hearts stay rooted in the why behind the what. The point of Advent is to refuse to be distracted by the over-commercialized, consumer-driven holiday that Christmas has become, and instead press into the reality of who Jesus is and what his life and death and resurrections mean for us personally. And to do that, Advent has been a season that has historically been marked by waiting and preparation. So if you've been with us for a long time, this sounds very familiar, and we're going to call you to the same thing every year, a season of making room for what Jesus has done and what he will do, right? Looking back and looking forward. But so often, if you have lived very long, you know that the season itself, Christmas, uh, rather than being marked by special attention to Jesus... Uh, The season itself grabs all our attention, and we end up distracted by all the ways we have come to celebrate Jesus, right? Like giving gifts and cooking meals and et cetera, et cetera. And the the tension that I have long felt as a Christian is how can I hold on to one hand the to-do lists and the buying and the wrappings and the cooking and the decorating without forfeiting, on the other hand, a heart of peaceful expectation and quiet waiting and intentional focus on the mystery of God becoming man to seek and save that which is lost, right? How do we, as Christians, gladly participate with others in all the festivities without losing the substance of the coming of Jesus, that he came and that he will come again, right? Without the depth of the thing being washed away or snowed under, right? So I want to keep... Just personally, I want to keep the reality of Emmanuel, God with us, at the forefront of my heart and mind and encourage my family and friends of the same through this season. Therefore, Advent is not a call to do something. You need to hear that from the onset. Advent is not a call to do something. Advent is a call to be something, to be a kind of person 
as you go about doing the things necessary, right, with all of its trappings in the Christmas season. So, like I said, if you've been with us a long time, this is going to sound quite familiar, and I don't uh, mind uh, reminding you of similar things that you've heard before. Um, So let's read, and then I'll pray. Okay, so Luke 1, we're going to start in 26, and we're sitting with kind of Mary today is the scripture. Um, Then we'll pray. So starting in 26. 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Hail, O favored one, the Lord is with you. And she was greatly troubled at the saying and considered in her mind what sort of greeting this might be. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. And you shall call his name Jesus. And he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and ever. And his kingdom, to his kingdom, there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, Wait a second, did you just say pregnant? <laughs> How shall this be, since I have no husband? And the angel said to her, I love that, he goes this long list. He'll be this, he'll be that. And she's like, wait a second. <laughs> um, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your kinswoman, Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her, who was called Barren, for with God nothing will be impossible. I love the tying together of barrenness to barren with the coming of Jesus. It's a picture for us. For with God nothing will be impossible. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be done to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. So let's pray. Father, I ask that you would Um, Grant us the peace of the Holy Spirit, God. Would you come and allow us to sit with Scripture, Father? Father, I pray that you would um, open blind eyes and open deaf ears uh, to hear the Word of God, which glorifies the Son. Father, I pray that our hearts' affections would be stirred for Jesus as we sit together this morning. Come, Holy Spirit, and do the things that only you can do. Jesus' name, amen. What we didn't read is a little bit down the road. It says, Mary kept all these things, pondering them in her heart. Little Mary, theologians would say, is probably 14 or 15 years old. Um, she is, according to the cultural uh, norms of the day. Now, pregnant out of wedlock was a sin punishable by death. And we can't begin to imagine the social scandal this would have been for her and her family. And here, little Mary has the Son of God in her belly, forming, taking up space, making her more and more uncomfortable as the pregnancy progressed, right? And all the mommies said amen. You see, in Mary's pregnancy, we get this remarkable picture of what it looks like when we say yes to God. And every year, it reminds me 
that saying yes to God while full of joy and release and burdens being lifted does not mean it will be comfortable when we say yes to God. So if you're a mommy, those nine months, probably the most physically uncomfortable nine months you've ever had, like nausea, swelling, defeat, you know, fatigue, appetite changes. My wife has done it three times, and I can't say that it's her favorite season of life, right? And so for us, if we're going to be a people who bear Christ in us, the image of Christ around us, just like you, when you receive a baby and make room for him in a house, so too are there things that we must do to make room for Jesus in our hearts and lives, right? Christ has come, he has pursued, he has invited, and the ball is in our court, so to speak, as to whether or not you will welcome him and make room for him in the interior of our lives. Paul in Galatians calls to mind the imagery of childbearing when talking about Christ being brought into your life. He says, my dear children, for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. And so we see this picture of just like the baby grew in Mary's womb, so too does Jesus long to take up more space in your heart and life. He wants to grow in significance and power and influence and love and affection in the hope that you will say yes to the changes necessary to make room for him in greater and greater degree. So how do we do that? Well, Mary helps us here as well, right? Mary said, this is what we're gonna sit with today. Mary said, behold, I am the servant of the Lord, let it be done to me according to your word. So we see, and now, the, maybe if the Catholics have erred in overemphasizing Mary, then maybe the Protestants have also erred in the opposite direction of completely ignoring her. Uh, and so we're going to sit with her a little bit today, right? Uh, we see in Mary an honor and, honor to, for, and submission to the word of God by what she says, let it be done to me according to your word. Um, first, regarding highly and honoring God's word. What we didn't read is a bit later, Mary's Magnificat, right? She busts into overwhelming overflow of praise, right? And almost every word that she quotes is scripture. I'm gonna read it to you, right? It should be on the screen. Mary said, my soul glorifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my savior. For he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy takes, Mary takes scriptures that she had absorbed into the fiber of her life and fuels it with praise uh, for what God is doing before her very eyes. And it's clear that this young woman had spent considerable amount of time in the word, so much so that it could flow out of her at any time spontaneously in praise to God. And what we know about Mary is she didn't just read it, she reflected and pondered and contemplated. It says that she kept all these things in her heart, pondering them. The word there is symbolo, which is the word they would use when they met someone. It's also the word, it also has confrontational overtones. It's the word when two kings would meet to fight, right? And so when Mary experienced the word of God, whether written or spoken by angels, she confronted it. She met it. She grabbed it by the horns and wrestled it down to the ground. She 
preserved it in her mind. She assimilated it, honored it for what it was, treasured it. She rolled it around, went back to it over and over again. And I would argue that one of the best ways we can make room for God in this season, uh, preparing for his presence in our lives, is by giving ourselves over to extended periods of time of lingering over his word. And I call you to this every year in this season because it's the exact opposite of what we feel we should be doing, right? We feel like we should be hurrying and running. For many people, the, the start line is now and the finish line is New Year's Eve and then we can breathe again, right? All the chaos and the to-dos of Christmas. What I'm calling you is in this season to make it marked rather than by hurry and hectic and busy, by periods of lingering, leisurely lingering over the word of God. And I say linger because I don't want you to hear me say, you need to go read your Bible. I think we often approach the Bible like we approach Christmas lists, right? We got a lot to do and we got to get this done. And so let's check it off the list. And we don't often take Mary's example and ponder and meet it and linger with it. We often want drive-through spirituality, don't we? And we don't park. So our approach, often when it comes to reading the word of God, is efficiency, right? Just get the information in and move on. And that is not what I, what I want to encourage you in at all. I'm talking about spending unhurried time with God, not doing, being with God, letting his word wash over you, mingling, reading with meditation, with silence, with prayer, with just sitting. And for many of us, this might feel strange. We just read the Bible, Chris, and we assimilate it like we would assimilate a math book or a history book. No, that's not how you read the Bible. And I want to sit with today how we approach the Bible itself and the obstacles that we may face when we think about reading the Bible in this way, this kind of contemplative pondering, resting in, letting it wash over us. See, what I'm talking about is more like the psalmist when he says, Selah. I don't know if you've read the Psalms much, but what you're going to find is this funny little word called Selah after these statements that he thinks deserves more reflection. So he'll say something and say, Selah. In other words, you shouldn't move on past this quite yet. Stay there for a second. Selah is just a musical notation. It's a sustain. We did it a ton in our worship service. Uh, sustain is when you hang out on a note a little bit longer. You stay there, right? You let it ring out. You rest in it. You don't move on so quickly, right? So the psalmist is saying, wait, 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 wait. Don't move on as if you have this assimilated just by mere intellect. Ponder it. Sit with it. Think about it. Ask questions about it. This is the kind of reflective reading that I'm talking about, right? We see Jesus himself routinely getting away from noise and busy and crowds, even his own disciples, right? And retreating to a place to be alone with God. And I'm like, yes, praise him. Yes, Lord. Get away from my kids, right? Got to hide in the bathroom for a second of silence in my house, right? Even his own disciples, he drew away from to be with God over and over and over again in the New Testament. You're going to see this Matthew 14, Mark 1, Luke 6. All are examples of Jesus dismissing crowds, going to mountains, getting up early, going to deserted places, spending time alone with God in prayer. And listen, y'all, if the Son of God 
has to habitually get a loan from people, you can bet the farm we need to as well, right? So I just want to sit with this. What would it look like for you to, like Colossians 3.16 says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly? What would that look like? How would that play itself out in the reality of your schedule? What's the habits that would have to be made in your heart and mind and life to let the word of Christ dwell in you richly? The language of that phrase, dwell in you richly, is, is making it a centerpiece. So in our modern era, we make centerpieces to our living rooms, what? The TV. That's the centerpiece of our modern era, is it not? We, we, the first thing you decide when you move into a house is where is the TV going to go? And then once you figure that out, then you can figure out that room, right? The TV is going to go on this wall. Therefore, everything else will then be assigned a place in relation to the TV. See, we give that priority. We give that centrality in the room. It's okay. I'm not guilting you. Don't, everyone's like, you know, I do the same thing. I'm just saying it's what we do, okay? And it is saying, give the word of Christ in your heart and mind that kind of centrality. It's saying, decide where it's going to be, and then let everything else in your interior of your life position itself in relation to that word. Does that make sense? It's saying that the word of Christ, the word of Christ gets center stage in your thinking. It gets priority in your thinking. And in your thinking about life and troubles and joy and marriage and relationships and education and politics, dare I say, the word of Christ should be central to all of those other things. All of those other things align in your life in relation to, are we, is this making sense? Okay. Eugene Peterson has a book called Eat This Book. And it is a conversation in the art of spiritual reading. And I'm going to read you a portion of it. Years ago, I owned a dog who had a fondness for large bones. And you've, you've heard this before if you've been here a while. Fortunately for him, we lived in the forested foothills of Montana. In the forest, he rambled often and came across carcasses of white-tailed deer that he had brought, been brought down by a coyote. Later, he would show up on our stone lakeside patio, carrying or dragging his trophy, usually a shank or a rib. He was a small dog, and the bone was often nearly as large as he was. Anyone who's owned a dog knows the routine. He would prance and gambol playfully before us with his prize, wagging his tail, proud of his spine, courting our approval, and of course, we approved we lavished praise, telling him what a good dog he was. But after a while, satiated with our applause, he would drag the bone off 20 yards or so to a more private place, usually the shade of a large moss-covered boulder, and go to work on the bone. The social aspects of the bone were now behind him. Now the pleasure became solitary. He gnawed the bone, turned it over and around, licked it. He worried it. Sometimes we could hear a low rumble or growl, what in a cat would be a purr. He was obviously enjoying himself and in no hurry. After a leisurely couple of hours, he would bury it and return the next day to take it up again. An average bone lasted about a week. I always took delight in my dog's delight, his playful seriousness, 
This, I love this guy. He's so poetic. He, he's the guy, Eugene Peterson is the guy who translated the message uh, Bible. His childlike spontaneity now totally absorbed in the one thing needful. It's quoting Mary and Martha. That. But imagine my further delight in coming upon a phrase one day while reading Isaiah, in which I found the poet prophet observing something similar to what I enjoyed so much in my dog, except his animal was a lion. He said, as a lion or young lion, old lion or young lion, growls over his prey. Growls is the word that caught my attention. What my dog did over his precious bone, making those low throaty rumbles of pleasure as he gnawed and enjoyed and savored his prize, Isaiah's lion, Isaiah's lion did to his prey. Now, the nugget of delight was in noticing that the word growl here, Hagah, was usually translated meditate in the Bible. In Psalms 1, the phrase describing the blessed man or woman whose delight is in the law of the Lord on which he, Hagah, day and night, meditates. Or Psalm 63, when I think upon thee, when I think of thee upon my bed and meditate on thee in the watches of the nights. But I, I meditate, Hagah. But Isaiah uses this word to refer to a lion growling over his prey, the way my dog worried a bone. Hagah is a word that our Hebrew ancestors used frequently for reading the kind of writing that deals with our souls. Meditate is far too tame a word for what is being signified. Meditate seems more suited to what I do in my chapel with a candle burning or what my wife does while sitting in the rose garden. But when Isaiah's lion and my dog meditated, they chewed and swallowed using teeth and tongue, stomach and intestines. There is a certain kind of writing that invites this kind of reading. Soft purrs and low growls as we taste and savor and anticipate and take in the sweet, spicy, mouth-watering, soul-energizing morsels. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. I love that. And that's why I'm reminding you again of the same thing that I've reminded you of years ago, right? Another points out that Hagah, that word, is when a person is lost in his religion, so absorbed he loses track of time and place. Another compared this kind of reading as letting very slowly a lozenge dissolve and melts imperceptibly in your mouth. Reading the Bible requires a reader who does not always remain bent over the pages, but often leans back, closes his eyes over a line he has just read, and allows its meaning to spread through his blood. So when the psalmist says, taste and see that the Lord is good, we might assume he's talking about having a supernatural emotional experience in a tent revival meeting, right? What if the invitation to taste and see that the Lord is good is to partake in the presence of God through the God-revealing, God-glorifying word of God in quiet and in stillness? Remember, for the prophet Elijah, God's voice was not in the earthquake or the fire or the wind. It was in the soft whisper and quiet of a smooth breeze. Now, often, our approach itself to the Bible is the issue. 
See, it's how we think about the Bible that's often the deterrent to this kind of reading. We don't see the Bible as revelatory and intimate. We often see the Bible as informational and impersonal, right? So instead of living and active, we see the Bible itself as academic and rigid. Instead of authoritative and clear, it's suggestive and fragmented and confusing. And if we think of it that way, it's not hard to see why our time in the Word is unrewarding, right? Or why you've struggled to comprehend anything I've said up to this point, right? We think we're often approaching a textbook instead of the greatest story ever told that we get to play a part in that the Holy Spirit is actively working through. Perhaps the real obstacle to this kind of Bible reading that I'm talking about is when we are uncomfortable giving the Bible any real authority in our lives. If we refuse to allow the Bible to be the authoritative text on reality that it claims to be, we will not be able to freely enjoy the Bible in the way that I'm talking about. In the book, he paraphrases Karl Barth saying this, we do not read this book in order to find out how to get God into our lives, no. We read this book and find that page after page, it takes us off guard and draws us into its own reality and pulls us into participation with God on his terms. I love that. Meaning, we don't invite God into our reality, but but rather God is inviting us into his reality by his living word, right? So what's that mean? Well, that means that we don't, as Christians, as people who read the Bible, we don't pour the Bible into the filter of our experience and culture to decide what parts matter. Does that make sense? We don't pour the Bible into the filter of our experience and our culture and let our culture filter out the parts that we think, but rather we pour our experience and our culture through the filter of the Bible and let the Bible have its authoritative way over us. We ask Jesus, you sift me, Lord. We don't sift your word. We ask Jesus, you weigh me. But so many of us today have taken a position of weighing the Bible, don't we? And if there is a part that we don't like or it goes against the sentiment or the predominant uh, culture of our day, then we say, well, that, that part's not really relevant or we shouldn't listen to that part because it doesn't align with the c- cultural climate, right? Do we not? Well, we so do. Yeah. And we filter out the Bible by our experience, right? Instead of letting his words filter out us. And when we filter the Bible through our experience and culture, we have replaced the authoritative Bible with the authoritative self, right? So instead of Mary's, let it be done to me according to your word, it's let me see if this fits in with my personality and lifestyle and I'll get back to you, right? So Tozer points out, this is a great Tozer quote, that our unwillingness to submit to scripture is often the reason we cannot delight in it. And he says this, Let me say so boldly, it is not the difficulty of discovering truth, but the unwillingness to obey it that makes it so rare among men. Our Lord said, I am the truth. And again, he said, the son of man's come to seek and save that which is lost. Truth, therefore, is not hard to find for the very reason that it's seeking us. So we learn that truth is not a thing for which we must search, but a person 
to whom we must hearken. Love that. I want to encourage you today to not have an impoverished view of the Bible. Jesus is called the Word made flesh, and he longs to intimately and personally encounter you through his written word, y'all. I want to challenge the way you think about the Bible. The act of opening the Bible is not an academic act. The act of opening the Bible is a relational act. You are learning about someone is being revealed to you through the pages. That's why Christian is a revelatory religion. It is revealed. And the primary instrument through which God reveals himself to us is not me. And it's not this place. Love this place. Love what I get to do here. It's through his word. It's the primary place where God longs to encounter you and encourage you and build you up. I was talking to a friend the other day. I'll just say he was wiser and more experienced than me. He had more gray hair than me, basically. And he was lamenting what he saw as an overdependence on emotional experience in younger people uh, for, in some Christian circles. And, and he just mentioned, so he was talking about this idea, and he mentioned that his greatest moments of awareness of the presence of God are what he said, when I felt the anointing of God, right? That's, what, that's the word he used. Was not in church services when the worship team was cranked up to 11. He said that the moments that he had felt the most anointing of God was in his time alone studying the scripture. He said when the Holy Spirit was connecting in his mind scripture to scripture and revealing truth to him personally. And I said, absolutely. I mean, I, I love what we do on a Sunday morning. It's, I look forward to it. I anticipate it, right? It encourages me. It fortifies me. I feel like it tethers me to something stronger than myself, right? We get together, we open the word, and I love it, right? And if, but if this church were to disappear, <laughs> and we, we, just, we just, you know, the delivery of the preaching, I would miss. I would miss that. But the main thing that my soul would miss is the prepping for preaching. Because I can't tell you how many times I've spent prepping for a sermon brought to tears over the goodness of God. It's really remarkable. So I'm like in a cafe, like trying to hide the fact that I'm like, <laughs> just because. And I, I grieve for us as Christians who have never experienced anything of that sort, for whom to you that feels a very alien and weird idea to be just reading a book, getting emotional over it, right? But what God has done for me, I long for him to do in you, which is giving yourself over to extended times of study and connecting scripture to scripture and finding that the Holy Spirit meets you there over and over again. I have to say, as great as our meetings are, as much as I love them, that time in the world, that time in the word, so far outweighs in significance and enjoyment anything we do on a Sunday morning. And that's what God has for us all. Not just corporately coming together and worshiping and rejoicing together in things, but individually. I had a friend in high school who the solution to everything for him was solitary. I mean, solitude. That's what he said, not the game. <laughs> solitude. You know, man, Kyle, I'm struggling with this solitude. Dude, I just feel like there's an issue with solitude. You just need to get along with Jesus. For him, it had taken such a transformative and rewarding uh, facet 
It's just what he was telling everyone. You need to, spend, you need to be alone with God. Get alone with God, right? I can't begin to tell you how spiritually invigorating it has been for me being occupied with the word like we talked, like Paul was, right? And it fills him with so much joy. So I want to end with this. Um, the biblical paradigm of Advent, right? The, the season of Jesus coming to us and us sitting with this side. The, the biblical paradigm is not we push our way to God. That's not Christianity, right? That's advice. You got to do this. You got to do that. You got to push. The biblical paradigm of Christianity is that God pushed his way down to us. So Jesus said, uh, pray thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The Bible talks about heaven coming to us, not us dragging ourselves to heaven, right? And perhaps the place we start in this idea is pondering the mystery the fact that Jesus came to us. If you wanted to sum up the entire season of Advent, you could, you could put it in one, one phrase. God came to us. God came to us. And that is what differentiates Christianity from every other religion. Every other religion is fundamentally advice. Every other religion is you should do this and you should do that and you should do this. Christianity is fundamentally news. It is telling us that something has happened. That God has come to us. And that's the news of Advent, that God has come to us. And I think it's a fantastic place to start if you should be so bold as to begin reading the Bible in the way that I've been talking about. If you should carve out time this week and sit with Scripture, I would encourage you, one of the things that I would encourage you to ponder is this idea of the incarnation, of God himself wrapping himself in flesh and pursuing us, coming to us, instead of saying to us, you must do this, this, or that to reach to me, right? That's the news of Advent, and we're called to wrestle with it and what it, mean, what it may mean for us personally, right? Let's stand and pray.